This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers, grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in, grab a bucket, and have a seat. We're talking ice fishing. This is Anthony and Kyle with the Shack Talk podcast, uh, brought to you by Eskimo Ice Fishing, and we're here with another great episode and a you know a couple great guests lined up for this uh, for this podcast. And I know we've been out fishing, having some fun. Kyle, you've been out just recently. It's been great. You know, you get to that point in the season when there's you you, get, you finally wrap up all the shows, you wrap up all the events and the retail um, visits, and and here you are, and you, you're. Your only thing in the the headlights is is getting out on that ice, and it's been awesome. Yeah, and conditions have really improved for most of the people across the ice belt. I know myself, and I was out on a lake. I was a little nervous that there was going to be slush or different things that we were going to encounter, but we we got out, had some fun, and encountered some great fishing. So I hope for all of our listeners, they've been able to get out and enjoy some of that fishing. And we've actually gotten some feedback from some of our listeners that are interested in another segment. And so we we wanted to bring in someone to to talk to this segment, and we're going to be talking about finesse panfish tactics. Uh, one of those things that if you're fishing in an area um, and you're just maybe struggling to catch some of those fish that you're marking, and we wanted to bring in uh, someone who specializes in targeting a lot of those fish. And a big thank you to our listeners because it's feedback like that, right, Anthony? Uh, when someone gives us a suggestion, and we're going to take those leads, and and we appreciate being pointed in those directions, and 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 we'll take that and and bring on an expert and and have a conversation that everyone can benefit from. Most definitely. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast uh, Ryan Wyland. He's uh, an Eskimo staffer with us, and uh, he lives in the Minocqua, Wisconsin area, and he spends a lot of time out on the ice uh, chasing panfish. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Yeah, guys. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me and look forward to talking panfish. It's exciting. So I know conditions haven't been great over there. I, you know, <laughs> I've heard uh, the rumblings of uh, maybe some some poor ice conditions and a lot of snow. But uh, we're hoping we can pick your brain and you know get some of your insight on those uh, those pesky panfish over there. Yeah, definitely. So you know, I think I think you did nail it on the head, though. We we have been really really fortunate the past few days here actually to get some warm weather, which sounds crazy midwinter that we want 45 degree days but that's actually what what we needed uh we needed some of that slush to melt some of that snow to melt and it followed up with some well below freezing nights and conditions have improved immensely so uh then some negative thoughts negative feedback up here in northern wisconsin thus far this season we had some really really big and exciting events up here canceled unfortunately the wisconsin high school ice fishing championship up here got canceled which is uh, frustrating for everybody, but safety safety is the biggest thing. The good thing is, you know, looking forward, if we don't get a lot of snow here, we're going to have a really good late ice. So, uh, and, and even we're still midwinter. So, you know, perfect time to be talking uh, finesse panfish because it's it's dialed up and, and ready to go now. Most definitely. And so, be, you know, as we kind of dive into this segment, um, you know, there's a lot of different things when people talk about finesse pan fishing, um, whether you're fishing, you know, an area that gets a lot of pressure or you're fishing, you know, a lake that's got really clear water, or clear conditions, or, you know, maybe it's just bad weather, or you're fishing in tough conditions. So, Ryan, do you fish, you know, when you're fishing these types of scenarios, um, is there something that you kind of try to, what, what's your first approach when you're going to fish one of these conditions? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think you really teed that up well, because I think w- when I talk to people at shows or just out on the ice or, you know, wherever we're talking to people, I think a lot of people think about finesse panfish as, you know, geez, the weather really stinks or we have this super high pressure system coming through and nothing will bite. But I think ultimately a lot of different things lead to that. I think you nailed it exactly. You got clear water, you have high pressure uh, from other anglers, whether that's, you know, we get into midwinter or seasons like this specifically up here, we, there's not a lot of areas to fish. So a lot of the fish are in those places where, you know, the, the hot spots are right by the boat launches. That's where everybody's going. So there's a lot of things that do create, uh, you know, finesse situations or the need for finesse situations. And, you know, the biggest thing for me in, and this is an, an interesting one, I think we can talk or we will talk hopefully about a lot of the different things I do, tip tactics, you know, setups, things like that. The biggest thing that I have found, it's, it's really interesting. And I've sort of learned this with technology. I think there's a lot of ways to think about technology on the ice. Uh, for me, it's been live scope the past few, few years, the, the opportunity to actually use that technology. And what it has taught me is uh, not just catching fish. You know, we all talk about using things like live scope and our flashers to find fish, catch them, etc. For me, it's been a really interesting scenario and an opportunity to learn about some of these finesse panfish situations. And what I mean by that is I have seen firsthand where we find fish using live scope. We find this big school of crappies, bluegills, whatever it is, whether it's 10 feet of water, 30 feet of water, 40 feet of water out in the basin thinking suspended crappies. And one thing I have noticed is as we are moving on the ice, even when there's a lot of snow, when we're drilling, you know, we all think um, that the auger isn't going to affect fish that are 40 feet down. I have seen the exact opposite. And I'm a big electric guy. I use the pistol bit. I use the ion. So even in my head, I've always thought, well, those things aren't making a ton of noise. They break through really easy. They're quiet. They're not creating a lot of vibration. But I have seen watching panfish on live scope that when you're walking around on the ice, when someone, you know, forgets something at their truck and you've located fish and then you drive up with the snowmobile or as you just start drilling and fishing, those fish will scatter. They will go to the bottom. They'll move around. And so one of the biggest things that I have seen when the panfish especially are negative, when they're not chasing, you know, big spoons or rattle baits like we all like when, you know, the bite is, is red hot, early ice, late ice, when, when they're really easy in theory to catch. When, when we get in these midwinter situations or have pressured fish, I am a big proponent the last few years, and I've watched this, to really let areas settle, get set up, drill your holes, get everybody ready to fish, and don't just panic if there's no fish where, where you think they should be. Um, I have seen just us drilling holes, walking to spots, fish will just completely mushroom out. They will just plume. And then we wait 10, 15 minutes. We just have live scope down in the hole. We're watching. And all of a sudden, they'll slowly bunch back up. They'll get underneath us. Some of that, you know, movement goes away. And all of a sudden, everybody's catching fish again. So that has been one thing that, you know, again, thinking about technology, thinking about finesse panfish, don't panic. If you're in your best spot ever, and all of a sudden, the fish are, are, are not there. They might be there. They might just need to come back. And I've seen it in brush piles, cribs, et cetera. So that would be one thing that I, I think a lot of people don't think about is how we are actually affecting these panfish from the top side. And, and so that's been been really eye-opening to me the last few years. And I think that's really great advice. I know myself too, fishing, you know, basin hole or something, and maybe you're the first person there and you're you're catching these fish and all of a sudden more people start moving in and they're making noise and drilling holes. And all of a sudden you're just not marking fish like those fish, they're still in the area, but you might have to move to the edge of that basin or, you know, get away from the crowd. It might still be a great area, but you maybe just have to get away, like you said, from that pressure. Yep, definitely. You know, 
that makes me think of an analogy. And the analogy is when we fish in open water, right? And, and our boat will do that mm-hmm. same thing. It'll push fish out to the, to the sides. And those fish still want to be in that, that same location that you just drove over, but they're going to move because of that activity. Now, we, we can't use planer boards when we're ice fishing, but we can <laughs> definitely take the advice that you just gave us and let things settle back down and know that if we saw that there were fish there prior to us, you know, causing a commotion, that they will come back. Definitely. Yep. So, and, yep. And, and, you know, another thing, oh, go ahead, Anthony. No, that's fine. I was just going to, you know, there's so many different aspects of, you know, that, that high pressure, you know, that people need to take into consideration, like you mentioned with the structure you're fishing, you know, is there something to hold those fish or is it just a random flat and there happens to be fish there? Are those fish going to stay there? So I think using that kind of analogy of the pressure and knowing the structure beneath you um, will really help kind of guide you where those fish should be. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the bigger things too, that I've noticed, and this isn't the last few year thing, this is a, you know, let's call it a, a tip trick, whatever. Um, I'm not big into secrets cause I, I want to share everything I can to, to help people catch fish. But one thing when I am looking for these fish that I have noticed in, and I think a lot of times we think about this in shallow water, but for me up here, Northern Wisconsin, we have a lot of glacial lakes, sand bottom. We don't have a lot of muck on some of our lakes. We have crystal clear water where lakes that I'm talking, where we pan fish that in the summer, when we're looking at smallmouth down on the bottom, we can see them in 15, 20 feet. So crystal clear water. And, and that's another area where, you know, finesse pan fish is, is really, really clear. As you mentioned in that clear water, it's not something that a lot of people think about, but where I'm getting with this is Another thing that, that I really do when you start talking about, you know, tips and ideas and, and tactics when you're searching for these fish is to eliminate what I call the sunbeam. Um, I, I don't know if that's the right word for it. Some people call it projection beam, whatever you want to call it. And, and what I mean is on these really sunny days. So we all like sunny days. It's warmer. You know, our hands stay a little bit warmer. Uh, but it does create sort of a project, projection down on the ice. And it's even more so when we get into these times of year in, in conditions like we've all been talking about. Lots of snow on the ice. We're facing slush. We have water on the ice. So you have, in theory, down there, you have low light conditions for these fish. They don't have a ton of light on them like they do early in the year when we are fishing with four inches of ice and there's no, you know, there's no snow on the lakes or late ice where things start to melt. So this time of year... And you can actually see this on the camera. This is something I picked up on, you know, actually from someone that I fished with about eight years ago. When you, when you drill four or five holes in an area on a sunny day, put the camera down facing in like an, an up position, and, and you'll be really surprised how much light comes down the holes. So, so one thing I do when I'm trying to locate these fish, and even when I'm sitting on, on crappies or bluegills, I actually leave slush in the hole. So, you know, look, we, we all love reverse on our augers and it works. It's awesome for the wheelhouse guys. I actually kick slush back into my holes, which sounds super counterintuitive. But when I'm looking for fish, I have noticed that especially in shallow water, midwinter like this, sunny days, even cloudy days, you still get light going down the hole. Those fish know something's up. They know that, look, every everywhere else on this whole area, this whole bay, this whole basin is, is in theory dark. And all of a sudden I have seven, 10, 20 holes projecting down on me. Like what's going on? They get super leery. They will move out of the area. They'll move up in the water column, down in the water column. They get really, really skittish. I mean, they're not, they're not stupid in, in theory. So 
Uh, that's another thing I do when I'm searching for fish. And then what I do is obviously when I find those fish, when I find that area, then I'm going to clean out those holes, makes it a lot easier to fish. You don't have your line freezing. And that's when I'm going to set up my shacks. That's when, when, you know, the hub shelters come up or for me, I'm a big Sierra thermal guy. So, cause it's easy to pull around when I'm hole hopping. So I'll set that up where I then get, you know, keep the window shut. And then you're creating that darkness with an, an open hole. So another thing to just, as when I'm thinking about finesse panfish, when I'm thinking about pressure in areas or highly pressured areas, those fish, I, I believe a hundred percent will move to those areas that are, are darker or more. It's not even about darkness. It's just about being more natural to them. You know, we drill a bunch of holes, all of a sudden there's a bunch of light and they know something's up. I mean, just naturally. And that's another thing that will, will really push them out of an area. So uh, something I like to talk about, something I, I, you know, I learned from someone else that, that I fish with is eliminate that sunbeam when you're, you know, out there searching in the basin or even in shallow weed flats, whatever it is, just, just keep it dark for those fish so that you know, if they're actually there, even when you're just looking with the camera, keep it dark. You know, you can still see with the camera nowadays, they all have the infrared lights or led lights. You can still see those fish. Uh, and then when you find them, set the shacks up and, and keep it, you know, dark down there, especially on sunny days. I think that's a really great tip for anybody that's, you know, maybe found fish, but all of a sudden they're starting to disappear. You know, keep that in mind when you're when you're out there fishing. I think that's a really great point. Uh, as we kind of look at the different gear and and technique specific stuff for this panfish, uh, finesse panfishing, kind of walk us through your setup. What what are the things and the the tips that we can give the listeners to? help them, you know, increase their, their hookups or getting these fish to commit and come into their bait. Yeah, definitely. So, so the biggest thing for me, from a setup perspective, something that I firmly believe in, um, look, everybody has sort of their belief on, on fishing line. Uh, for me, it is a hundred percent fluorocarbon a hundred percent of the time. So, you know, to maybe use a punter, whatever it is that, that is something um, you know, call it a fad, call it what you want. I am a, a firm believer, especially when we are talking finesse panfish, like, like we are today, those tough conditions, those clear water conditions, um, even just gaining an advantage on the guy who is fishing next to you in a highly pressured area. Uh, if they can see his fishing line, if they can see the reflection off his line, they can't see yours and all they are doing is focusing on your bait. Uh, I firmly believe that gives you an advantage. Uh, another, you know, if we're not even just talking finesse panfish and, and not having those fish to your bait, fluorocarbon has next to no stretch. So uh, when we start getting into midwinter like this, where the crappies can be 30, 40, 50 feet down in those basin situations, uh, when they hit, you have direct contact with that bait. So, so I am a big, big, big firm believer in 100% fluorocarbon. Uh, I believe in it when I'm bass fishing in the summer in clear water. Uh, and I believe in it on the ice when, when I'm out there. The other thing that does for me when you're thinking about line is historically I have used crazy small line. When I was growing up, we used monofilament because fluorocarbon, especially ice fluorocarbon, wasn't really a thing. Uh, the technology hasn't, hadn't been there. You know, you had a lot of issues with breakage, et cetera. So we use really, really tiny monofilament, one pound, two pound test. When you're using fluorocarbon, because that line is invisible, you can actually upsize. So you get better knot string. So I actually go with, uh, in finesse situations, I'm going with, with tiny little tungsten jigs and I'm using three pound fluorocarbon versus two pound monofilament. Uh, I am just a firm believer in giving yourself every single advantage as you can. And, you know, hey, if, if they can't see your line, that's one more advantage. You don't have any of that reflection from those sun situations like we're talking about uh, if light is coming down the hole. So, you know, it, it's just another thing to, to really give you an advantage and you can upsize your line. 
So, so I'm a big believer in, in fluorocarbon line and then sort of transitioning that into, um, you know, call it another fad, uh, the last few years, I, I think we're past the fad stage. Cause I think especially, you know, panfish, bluegill crappie, perch anglers are using inline reels. Uh, I have watched this on camera when inlines first came out, when they were all one-to-one reels, I remember using, you know, the, the original black Betty and it took forever to reel a fish up the hole. But I would watch jigs on camera just because I'm, I'm big into, to learning. I'm a, a student of the game, so to speak. And, you know, you, you'd have a, a jig on a spinning rod and you'd have a jig on an inline reel. And if you put the camera down, it is crazy how much that jig on that spinning reel spins around. Um, I've, you know, I'm not an expert on bugs or what these bluegills and, and crappies and perch are eating, but I have a firm belief that the things that we are trying to imitate with our jigs and our baits are not down there spinning in crazy 360 circles. So when you're talking about giving, again, giving yourself an advantage when the fish don't necessarily want to eat. Um, again, as we talked about, we all love those situations where you can drop a, a one sixteenth ounce spoon and as fast as you can get it down, you're pulling fish up. Those are great situations, but that's not the reality most days. That's just the honest, you know, belief and, and fact of, that I have um, and that I think we, most of us face. So with the inline reels, you are giving yourself an advantage with no jig spin. Um, again, I have seen it firsthand. I'm a big believer in that. Keep your bait as calm and as steady as you can, because that's natural to them. You know, they don't even want you jigging like crazy. Um, so, so, you know, just, just, you know, keep things in your favor, put everything, you know, sort of speaking about, put the ball in your court as much as you can. And I am a big believer in fluorocarbon line and inline reels. You know, Ryan, we talk about these things a lot being the little advantages we give ourselves as anglers that, Mm -hmm. you know, some days aren't going to make any difference at all. Like you said, some days you just drop your jig down there and they're going to bite. doesn't matter. But when it's not that way. When, when those little details matter, practicing them day in and day out, it adds up, it adds up in a big way when those fish are that negative. Yep. hundred percent agree. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Anthony, just taking it even a step further, you know, we're talking about the whole setup. Let's talk about baits. Obviously baits is, is a big, uh, you know, part of this. We have to catch them on something. So, you know, I said, I'd like, on, on days where panfish are going nuts, and that includes bluegills, I am a big believer in even rattle baits. I mean, that's sort of the big trend. Um, they work great. And, and one thing you can do on those days is you can eliminate the little fish. When you're talking finesse situations, when the fish, again, don't want to eat, you, you know, you get a high pressure situation. Look, we none of us like to fish on super high pressure situations um, weather-wise, but the reality is most of us work, especially the average ice angler. We only get out on Saturday and Sunday, and you know what? We can't always dictate the weather. That's the one thing, in theory, we can't control. We can control everything else. We can't control the weather. So uh, don't not fish because there's a high-pressure situation coming through on Saturday and Sunday. Look, we, we don't like to face it, but that's what it just seems like most days we have. So um, bait-wise, I am a big believer in, in the kiss method. So, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, my dad has said that to me forever about everything in life. My grandpa told me that, um, I guess it kind of sticks now with bait selections, especially in finesse situations. And what I mean by that is I use little tiny tungstens, like one, I guess you'd call it like a one six one seventy second. So really, really small tungstens in black and white. Uh, I can count on one hand in the last three, four seasons. And I'm being completely honest with you, how many times I have gone away from a black or white jig. Um, I am just a, a firm believer in keep it super, super, super natural. If you want to change something, change your plastic color. Uh, if you want to go crazy, but when we are talking about, again, 
finesse situations where the fish don't really want to eat or, you know, they'll eat, but it's got to look super, super natural. I have never seen a pink bug, a yellow bug, a gold bug. Um, look, there's days where, where pink is, is the best color in the world, especially for crappies. Not saying I don't have a bunch of pink jigs. I just am a believer in when those fish don't want to eat, give them something that looks exactly like they want to eat. They are very opportunistic feeders. Uh, I think we talk about in the summer, you know, muskies, pike, bass, walleye, whatever it is, all of those predator fish are opportunistic feeders. They want to eat big baits. They want to eat easy baits to eat. Uh, I believe that panfish are the same way. We don't think about them that way. I think a lot of times because they're much smaller and they aren't eating other, you know, eight inch fish. But the reality is they want to eat something that's easy to eat and looks supernatural to them. And, you know, they, it's just easy. They're, they're lazy fish too. So I'm a big believer in in black and white. And, and it sounds, you know, maybe too simple, but if you look at my jig box, I can send you a picture of it it is most all black and white. And, and that's just because that's what works for me. And, and if you want to pick one color, it's black. I use black about 90% of the time. And that's just the honest opinion. Uh, in, in high pressure situations, so all of these situations we're talking about, I do still use plastics. Uh, I am a big believer on on good days. And, and even when I start, because we don't always know when when those fish are going to be negative. I think you nailed it on the head. You guys did in the in the intro on you know, you find a bunch of fish, there's eight marks on the camera or on the, on the flasher and nothing will bite. Well, that's when you sort of figure out you're in a finesse situation. So I always start with big plastics, you know, bright plastics on that black or white jig, uh, because that's what I want those bigger fish to eat. Now, when I know they're not eating that, I just downsize my plastic. I will take small plastics, you know, something like a paralyzer from 13 fishing. It's a really, if you haven't seen it, it's a really small you know, super, super finesse plastic to start. And I'll actually cut those things in like a third. So, so that you get a really slender profile, I'll cut the main body of it in half, basically just giving me enough to, to hook it on. Again, they're eating really, really small bugs that are coming out of the, out of the ground, out of the weeds, whatever it is, or eating plankton. So why not give them something that's supernatural looking and super small? One time, you know, speaking of opportunistic though, when I do, and this sounds sort of opposite of what I just said about plastics, and I don't know why this is, but I have seen this day in and day out. When the fish are negative, when I'm using live bait, so something like spikes or waxies, I'll actually double or triple up. Uh, I, I think the reason is, again, they're opportunistic. They don't really want to eat, but then they see three waxies, you know, dangling in front of them. And they're like, wow, this is, I don't have to move much more than five feet and I can eat this big, huge waxy meal. Um, and they come over and eat it. So, so when I go with live bait in tough situations, I actually upsize. Um, I, it, it has always worked for me. I don't necessarily know the answer. That's just me trying to, to give a scientific reason to something. I don't really know why it works, but that's just how it works. Um, so hopefully that, that helps people out. Um, again, it's not always about just downsizing. It's about giving those fish what they want to eat and a really easy meal to eat that looks lazy. Um, so, so that's sort of the, the business end when we talk about baits. I think that's all really good advice, and I know you kind of mentioned, you know, keeping it natural, keeping it what the fish want to want to eat, and you know, see below the ice. And like, we're trying not to disturb these fish. I've I've even seen people go as far as taking a jig, putting their plastic or putting a bait on it, and like testing it out in like the column of their hole. Or I've seen guys do it at home mm-hmm. in a fish tank or a glass of water, and and just kind of see what that bait or that plastic does, and. It can really make or break how you fish that, that whether you're using a plastic or live bait or something, it can really change how you use that. And, and like you said, just keeping it natural and making it something that the fish want to eat. 
Definitely. Yeah. No, hundred percent agree. And that's, that's one of those things where, um, again, you, you just need to mix it up too, you, you know, and I, it, the fish don't, we would love to know how they think, why they think the reality is none of us do. Um, so, you know, I'm a big believer in, in, again, you know, I can say this works today or this works for me most days. Cause that's just the reality of what I see. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of days where I am rotating plastics like crazy, switching between live bait and in, in, in plastics and, and seeing what works. Cause I think, you know, even when you fished yesterday and, and the fish ate one thing really good, we've all seen it. You go back to the exact same spot, those same fish are there. And the next day they want something completely different. So, you know, that's the other thing I, I would just say is in those high pressure situations and really in any situation when we're thinking about paying fish, mix it up. You know, most days I have, you know, it sounds insane, but I have five or six rods that I rig up the night before that I think are going to work. And I have all six of those sitting next to me. In in a lot of days, it's it's one thing that's going to work really well. I just don't know which one of those things it is. And it changes day to day. So, you know, just don't don't give up. I mean, don't again, going back to the don't not fish because it's not perfect situation, perfect conditions. Um, we have to get out when we can get out. We have to enjoy the ice. We have to enjoy all of this great gear we have. So, you know, make the best of it and, and just, you know, keep trying, keep moving around, keep trying, keep trying different baits, you know, upsize, downsize and figure out what the fish will eat. But I think, Anthony, you really nailed it. You know, there's days where, you know, we don't like having someone come in on us and we all complain about it and we see all these crazy posts on the forums. Look, I get it. I mean, there's a lot of people that fish up here. It's great for tourism. So, you know, you kind of take the good with the bad. Um, but to your point, you know, just move away from those people. Those fish aren't just going to sit and get caught forever. I, I firmly believe that, you know, I've seen it in, in, uh, cribs as well that, you know, we've had for years and they're really good cribs and you catch 10 fish out of it and no one else is around, but those fish see 10 of their buddies going up, up the hole and something is off and, and they just scatter out. So, you know, don't be afraid to, it's not a big move all the time. It's just getting a little bit outside that pressure. And I think Kyle, you nailed it with the boat too, you know? on the boat, we don't always fish right underneath us. Most days we don't fish right underneath us. That's just not reality. We're casting out even when, you know, we're targeting specific, specific spots. So, you know, get out, move. Um, don't just sit there, drill two holes and, and think they're going to sit there all day. Cause the reality is most days they don't, especially in a highly pressured situation. And I think too, not even just day to day, but even throughout the day, you're going to have those windows where you're catching fish really good in the morning or something. And then maybe it slows down and you have to move to more of a finesse presentation to get those same fish to bite. So like you said, try different things. Um, I usually start out bigger, like you said, work my way down the spectrum to a small tungsten jig. And, you know, if, they, if they're not going to eat that, sometimes it's time to move and try and find some more active fish. But, <laughs> you know, that's just the, the nature of being out there on the ice and fishing. But I, I really appreciate you giving us some of your, your insight. And I hope that our listeners can take even just one small piece of this away and, and improve their, their technique and how they approach the ice when they go out on the water next time. Um, so again, thank you for, for coming on the podcast with us and, and sharing some of your, some of your knowledge with us. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me and, and everybody that's listening. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Monaco area, look me up. Happy to help at, at all times. Yeah. And if anybody wants to get a hold of you, Ryan, is there a great way to get a hold of you? Um, you know, where are you at? Uh, social media, that type of thing. Yeah. You know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, maybe the easiest way Facebook wise is even, you know, check out the, uh, fish addictions TV page. Um, you know, those guys can, can get you in touch with me, watch fishing reports. I'm, I'm always up to date on, on all of those things. And, and I do put out reports there as you know, Anthony on, on the fish addictions page of what's sort of happening in our area. So, so that would be one way. 
uh, Instagram, you know, look me up, um, search my name, uh, Ryan R Y N. Last name is, is W I E L A N D. I think my handle is actually R W underscore fishing. So maybe that keeps it, keeps it simple, but yeah, shoot me a message. Look me up, comment on the fish addictions page. Those guys will get you in touch with me. Awesome. Thanks again, Ryan. Um, Everyone that's listening, make sure to stay tuned. We got another great segment lined up, and uh, we'll make sure to bring you back in for another gear and equipment segment. We're going to be diving into another great topic that'll help you put some more fish on the ice. So stay tuned. Welcome back to this segment of Shack Talk. This is Kyle Eager here with Anthony Kleinwachter. And in this segment, we are joined by Mr. Adam Odette. Adam is the, he's the owner, he's the president of Tuned Up Custom Rods, uh, an organization that has developed some great tools for the ice fishing trade. And we've brought him in here today as, as an expert in having a conversation about ice rods, choosing ice rods, what ice rod is, is best for you, et cetera, et cetera. So welcome, Adam. Great to have you on Shack Talk. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Let's just start off. Tell, tell us a little bit about your story and, and how you came to be, because I, I know you've shared a lot of that with, with me, but most of our listeners haven't heard that. How did you get into the business, and, and how did that storyline really kind of develop? Sure. Um it, it all started from my, uh, my business partner, my brother-in-law, uh, who wasn't my brother-in-law at the time was dating my sister. And for my birthday, he, uh, he built me a fishing rod and I thought, man, this is really cool. And so, you know, they ended up getting married and I, and I said, John, um, let's, let's try this. Nobody else is really doing it. I mean, there was, there, there's, there was the, the people, uh, Thorn brothers has been doing it forever, you know, and, and we thought, well, Hey, nobody else is doing this, uh, besides them let's jump in and give it a shot. And so what we did is we had the idea of basically building a better mousetrap. Um, and it started with him, him and I and my dad in their basement. And it expanded from there to the second level of their house and then into the dining room. And my sister finally said, you guys get out of my house. This is ridiculous. Um, rods are all over the place. And so then we found our own spot and it just kind of, kind of took off and grew from there. We, we constantly developed new, uh, ice rods and open water rods, because if you, if you just sit still then people and competitors will run right past you. But, um, now we're up to, uh, 49 employees and, uh, just working away in, in Coon Rapids. That is fantastic. I, I love hearing those stories because when you have an idea, when you have something that's just birthed right there at home and it's, it grows out of, like you said, your basement and it, and it just took over and, and finally you had no choice, but to find another location and, and mm-hmm. that kind of growth, that kind of, um, just development is it's, it's absolutely awesome. And, and along the way, I know you've, you've learned a lot about not just out using ice rods. You do a lot of that as well, but you've learned about what makes a fishing rod, whether it be an ice rod or open water rod, what makes a rod a quality tool? What makes it an asset to the angler? Yeah. You know, and, and my gosh, there's, when, when you go into a store and you look at, you look at the the aisles and aisles of, of fishing rods, you don't really think about what is all involved 
in in doing that and you know there's i guess there's two avenues to look at it you've got your your high-end rods and you've got your your standard run-of-the-mill type of rods and um it comes down to a couple of things one um the materials that we use you know we're using our guides our high-end titanium recoil guides you, you compare our 110 dollar ice rod to a 20 dollar rod there's a there's a big chunk of the of the price right there in just the titanium alone and then you look at things like um you know your glass blends and your your uh carbon rods and and the different type of resins that you use and the 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 high-end cork and the high-grade cork i mean compared to the stuff that'll start falling apart in your hands as as you're fishing with it uh a few times so i learned a lot as we went on in the process about what to use how to use it there's different steps and processes um the one thing that i pride our uh, myself in and, and and our company tuned up custom rods is that um we we don't cheap out on material we don't cheap out on the stuff that people don't see the resins and the uh, uh the wraps um you're buying a high-end product we want to be sure that you're going to get everything high-end um so that's that's kind of kind of what we look for and that's what i learned along the way too is it really comes down to um your your materials that you're using and the people that are doing it too you know it's not just something you can just pick up and start pushing out right away it's a craft that you have to learn and and then train people on and be sure that they understand before we put out um the rod on on the shelf and adam correct me if i'm wrong but i i, I think i'm i'm not out of turn by saying uh, we get questions from from listeners, from other folks out there when we're doing our thing. And yeah, a rod that you might pick up at a sporting goods store or even a big box store. Can you catch a fish with it? Yes, Mm -hmm. you can. You definitely can. But I I know also that as we talk about um, wanting to be the best angler and maximizing the time that you have on the ice, uh, everybody has a budget. Everybody has what they're willing to invest in their equipment but little things make a difference. And we talk about yeah. terminal tackle. We talk about, you know, being comfortable when you're out on the ice, whether that be your apparel or your shack or your heater or however, however that might be. All of those little things add up to more fish on the ice. Bottom line. Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent with you. You know, it, it, it comes down to if you feel more fish, you're going to catch more fish and put them on the ice, right? If you feel more bites, you're going to catch more. The, the, the lower end rods, you're just not going to feel that. And it comes down to, like I, like I was talking about the components and the materials of the rod where you get into a high end carbon rod um, in like our split grip model. Now you've got direct contact with the blank. You're going to feel way more fish than you would before with, with your run of the mill $20 rod. So yeah, absolutely. The, the, the more that you invest in the sport, uh, the better you're going to be at it and the more success you're going to have. And Adam, I think not only just feeling those fish, but I know for me personally, having seen the, the advancements in the ice rods, being able to see those bites with some of those technique specific rods with the, the different colored tips or the sensitivity in the tip. And I mean, being able to detect those minute bites when you're fishing finicky panfish or crappies or anything like that. I know myself, I've put way more fish on the ice using a rod like that. And for people to understand that that's the reason you buy one of those rods. Is it 
not only is it going to catch you more fish, but you're just going to have more fun using it as well. Oh, absolutely. And that's the reason why our bullwhip rod is probably one of our number one sellers, because not only is it sensitive to the feel, but you've got that high vis yellow tip on the end that uh, it's, it's in that noodle category is where we placed it, but it's, it's got, it's got that really nice light tip. So you can detect uh, up bites and, and finicky bites, but it transitions really quick into a solid backbone. So let's say you're out fishing deep basin crappies. Um, you see that tip go down when you set that hook, because it transitions so fast into that backbone, uh, you're driving those hooks into that fish instead of completely missing it or ripping it out of the, out of the fish. You know, Adam, that's, it's funny you mentioned that because just last, this past weekend, my wife and I spent uh, a night out in a wheelhouse on, on a lake fishing basin crappies and, and she was using the bullwhip. And once I explained that you, even if you don't feel the bite, you can see the bite. Mm-hmm. Once she figured that out, she completely schooled me. <laughs> I mean, completely and totally. She, she passed me like I was standing still, but it was awesome because you see someone use something and, and learn something about that tool. Yep. And, and it just completely changes the whole, the, the whole outing. It actually does. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's be honest. It's, it's great to get out and, and, and hang out with your friends and your family and, and just being there with them on the ice outside is, is awesome. But man, that trip is so much more fun if you're catching fish. You're right. And I think in those difficult situations is that's when these tools really become more important. And I know the very first time I was using a an indicator type rod. And I seen that first upbite on a crappie. I thought to myself, how many of these fish have I missed over the years, not using a rod that was technique specific? Oh, it's that's spot on. You're absolutely right. And, and you know, you, you feel more fish or you see more fish, you're going to put them on the ice and your day just became a whole lot cooler. Okay, Adam, let's just, uh, let's take, let's take a bigger picture view of this. I've got a question that I want to ask just based on your expertise and that okay. is, and that is maybe for the beginning angler and, and, and maybe they're not ready to take that jump into a custom rod quite yet. Maybe that's, maybe that's a, a, a next step after this, but they're, they're brand new and yep. they walk into a, a, a sporting goods store and they see all of these different options, right? Everything from that $20 rod to those, those super nice custom rods. Mm-hmm. What for that consumer are the keys to choosing the best rod for their budget? Sure. Um, well, I think the first thing that I always ask people is, um, what, what are you going to target? Um, our rods from our noodle rod all the way up to our commander rods, it's, it's a wide spectrum of different powers and actions. And I think we got to figure that out first. I mean, what, what are you going to fish for? Are you a panfish person? Are you a walleye person? Are you fishing pike? Um, do you want something that's going to kind of cover a wide range of all those things? So I think once they narrow that down, um, that that's the first step. Um, the second thing that I always ask people is, well, wh- what are you fishing out of? Are you fishing in a, in a flip over a hub style house, a wheelhouse? Are you just sitting on a bucket, hopping around in holes? Uh, because now if you've noticed the industry has gone from, 17 to 22 inch rods to a 36 or 38 inch rod is not uncommon anymore on the ice. Um, so I think that you need to find, um, 
you, you briefly touched on being comfortable on the ice. You need to find what, what rod's going to be comfortable for you in your situation that you're fishing. You don't want to be hitting your house every time you go to set the hook. Um, so I found that a 32 inch rod is, is a really good spot. Um, I think the longer the rod you have, the better, uh, this is just my opinion, but you know, it comes down to the physics side of it is the longer lever, the more power you have, right. To set a hook. Exactly. So, um, I prefer longer rods. Um, I found that a 32 inch rod tends to be a pretty good all around length. You can get out and whole hop and not feel like you have to be on your knees all day long, or you can sit in a flip over house and not worry about hitting the front end where your door is, or even sitting back on one of those nice fancy couches in a, in a wheelhouse with the TV and you got plenty of room to, to jig. So, um, 32 is a good length, but the the first thing you got to figure out is what, what am I going to target? Do I need an all around rod? Do I need a pan fish rod? Am I fishing walleye? So that's the first step to jump into. And I think a great point too is, you know, if you're trying to target multi-species, you know, panfish to walleye, I mean, I know mm-hmm. personally myself, medium light action, it's, it's sensitive enough for most applications for those panfish, but still plenty of, you know, typically plenty of action for if you do hook into a walleye or a bigger fish. So I always try and steer people kind of to that if they're not sure, um, you know, maybe light if they're thinking panfish or medium if they're only walleyes. But for me, that medium light seems to be like that's going to cover the most most area within that spectrum you talked about. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you. You know, um, talking medium light and, and, and light and uh, unfortunately, the industry itself doesn't have an industry standard of, of what that means. And so that's why if you look at our rod lineup, we don't we don't label them that way. Um, we, we name them specific names because it's really hard to say, yep, this is a medium light or uh, this is a medium heavy. Um, so, you know, a good medium light rod in, in our category is, uh, our fusion rod or even our precision rod precision is a little bit stiffer. Um, but the fusion rod is, is in that medium light category. So, um, everybody fishes different. Everybody likes a little bit different feel. So that's why I highly encourage people to, yeah, we make a rod. If you say it's a, a panfish rod, but that guy might be a walleye guy and loves the way that feels pick them up, play with them, feel them, um, see if that's, if that's the style that you like and the action that you like. And I think for myself too, I, I probably started off fishing with those $20 combos. And for the most part, I was a walleye fisherman. And so everything I owned was medium. And the more I got into fishing those medium lights and lights, I started using those for walleyes too, because you get that rod loaded up, it's going to hold that fish usually a lot better and you're not going to rip the hooks out with a medium powered action. So I think a lot of people, if they would maybe tend to move more to that lighter side action, yeah, you, you got to have the backbone in the rod to hold the fish. But for Mm -hmm. me personally, and I've, you know, fished with quite a few people, it seems like if you get used to that lighter action, it, it seems to just be that much more productive. Yep. Oh, I, I agree hundred percent. And you know, uh, back to our fusion rod is, is it, is it a designated walleye rod? Not really because it's, you know, we don't want people fishing a quarter ounce bait with it. That's, that's going to be too much. And you know, is it meant to go out and target a, a 25 inch walleye? Nope, not at all. But will it handle it? Sure will. Um, but, but like you said, it's a little bit more forgiving. Um, guys like me who get pretty excited when you feel something, you know, especially the first, the first bite I feel that time on the, or that day on the ice, boy, do I set that hook. And, you know, I've been known to hit the roof of, of many fish houses, but, um, it, it's a little bit more forgiving if you, if you do have a little bit, a little bit lighter action. So, yep, absolutely. I agree with you on that. You know, I, I hate to even say this. I'm going to 
date and age myself here, but Anthony, you started out fishing with one of those $20 combos. I started out fishing with a broomstick with a couple of pegs in it, you know, and Oh boy. <laughs> oh yeah. I had a few I had a few jiggle sticks with the nail in the end and stick it to the ice. So I mean those were in the bucket too. So we've come uh, a long ways. We have come we, a long ways, no doubt we've about it. Definitely come a long a long way for sure. Now when you're talking about engineers and and miking out the the tapers on the rod and and you know hey can we get one more taper out of this so it slows the action down man is there a lot involved with uh, designing rods even so yep a long way i would uh, i would highly recommend folks uh, do their homework when they're going to pick up an ice rod um do their homework find out you know uh, um just like like you mentioned, Adam, the, the materials, compare the materials, compare mm-hmm. the workmanship, compare the, the, the different actions, compare the different uh, styles of rods that are out there, and, uh, and they'll all catch fish. But again, it's about giving yourself just that little bit of an edge to get ahead and, and give yourself an advantage. And, and that's what we all want to do. We all want to improve. And, you know, honest, honestly, I look at, at, I look, we talk about, you know, starting with a jiggle stick way back when, but even in the last five to 10 years, the technology advancements in, in ice rods is huge. Oh, ice rods. Let's talk about the ice fishing industry in general. I mean, from, from your electronics to uh, the wheelhouses that everybody are fishing out of, but uh, ice rods, my goodness. I mean, it seems like every, every year our engineer is, is coming up to us saying, Hey man, um, I've got this new idea. I got this new resin I want to try. It's going to be stronger, but lighter. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that are constantly evolving and that's, what's so cool about it. It, it isn't just a, a wood stick with two pegs anymore. It's, it's so much more involved than that. Um, even down to the guides. I mean, new, new things are coming around the corner for, for next season in, in our guides that I'm just, that's all I'm going to say about it. But, uh, <laughs> There, new things are coming, and um, it's it's going to be cool. I think people are going to really dig it, and it's gonna it's gonna help the guys uh, even more who uh, who are out and 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 using our rods. It'll help them catch more fish. So, Adam, you guys do custom rods. You customize every rod to order uh, specs that that an individual consumer might want. And when mm-hmm. we talk we talk about custom rods, I, I just want to put a plug out there for folks. Uh, if you have the opportunity in your area. Get involved. Take a take a custom rod building class from someone, and and go through the process even just once. And it and it isn't necessarily knowing how to build a fishing rod. What I've found is that that experience and listening to folks who are who are very good at it and 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 know the whole process. It's about educating yourself and knowing why is that custom rod so much better. Than a, than a standard production rod. Yeah. And I, I tell people all the time, if you're down in our area uh, in Coon Rapids, Minnesota, and you want to stop in, we love giving people the, the, the tour of the, of the shop and show you how the rods are made from the very beginning. You, you get an understanding of, Hey, this rod had seven sets of hands that touched this. Um, th- there's a lot involved from, from you know the blank selection to the hand fitting the handles and and hand taping guides on before they're wrapped and um, the finishing process and and you know, lining up the guides. I mean, there's uh, Kyle. You were you and uh, you and your son Tony were down and and you, you saw it and um, 
you know, I, th- I think, I think you, you guys were educated a little bit on, on, wow, there is a lot more to these rods than, than we thought. Yes, completely. And just having that understanding is really cool. Um, and it, it made us a better consumer. It made us a better, uh, angler really, to be honest with you, knowing how all those components fit together. And, and it was great. And I'm, I'm glad you sent that invitation out and, and we're, we're talking with Adam Odette of Tuned Up Custom Rods. Adam, share your website, how folks can get a hold of you if they do have questions. Because I know anytime we have a conversation like this, we, we get a, an influx of, of questions, people who want to know more, people who want to learn more, uh, or even, even talk to our guests. So go ahead and share sure. with them your, your contact info. Yeah, so you can. Uh, our website is tunedupcustomrods.com. It's a, it's a long one, but... Uh... TunedUpCustomRods.com. You can uh, all of our contact information is on there. We have a few of our uh, few of our sales guys plus the direct line to the shop um, and, and all of our email addresses. Uh, feel free to reach out to any of us. Um, the other thing that that people can do is our rods are are carried in um, the Shield stores. So um, feel free to stop in. Uh, the guys and gals in the fishing department at Shields are extremely knowledgeable about our rods, uh, and well, the equipment in general, um, and they'll be able to, to direct you and, and get you into that right rod of ours, whether it's a bullwhip or a precision or a commander. Um, they've got the whole lineup there. So you can touch and feel and, and figure out if, um, you know, which, which rod is going to be the best tool for you. That is fantastic. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you taking some time to visit with Anthony and I and, and share your knowledge, your expertise uh, with our listeners. It's uh, it's good stuff, and we appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Folks, uh, stick around. Don't go away. We are going to be right back with Why Do You Fish with Mr. Nick Linder. Welcome back to our third and final segment of Shack Talk Podcast. And we've had a great season talking to a variety of different anglers, getting their insights on really what drives their passion for fishing. Why do they like ice fishing? And Kyle, I can attest to you, we've we've had a lot of great stories so far this season. We have had just a, you said it right, just a, a awesome cross-section of folks who love the outdoors and have a passion for it. And, and that's what's been so fun is really listening to their stories. And this week's no exception. Uh, we uh, were able to track down a, a friend of ours in the industry and someone that uh, is probably a name that you may have heard of, or if not, you've at least heard of the the content and the media that he helps produce um, as far as what he does for the outdoor industry. Uh, comes from a long line of a fishing family. Um, I'm pleased to welcome to the show uh, Nick Linder. Um, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Hey, great to be on. It's it's really a pleasure, guys. As I kind of alluded to, um, for those that may not know a lot about you personally, um, you're involved with Angling Buzz, uh, Linder Media, content creation out there on social media and YouTube. But uh, give us a little bit of insight onto kind of what you're what you do for your day to day. You know, do you uh, spend more of your time out on the ice, or you kind of behind the scenes doing media production what's a what's a day in the life of of nick like well i would say that it's uh it's 
pretty close to being a dream, uh, a dream job. I mean, it's definitely a dream job, right? Um, basically, I get to hang out with a bunch of people who like to fish, and we make fishing media together, essentially. Um, so the the only thing that's that's that uh, I would say would be preventing it from being perfect was would be the fact that I don't necessarily get to be on the ice or on the water every single day or you know as much as I'd like to but I think that's all of us right um so yeah we make a lot of videos tv shows this that the other and it's all about fishing so I can't complain there's never enough time out on the ice that I mean for someone that spends a lot of time in the outdoors and ice fishing I mean I sit inside on the days that you're not fishing and it's nice out and you're like, boy, I just wish I could be out there fishing today. And then there's times when you plan a trip and it's 30 below and it's like, why are we out here fishing today? And it's, uh, it's quite the battle we deal with. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally true. I think, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm stuck behind the computer editing or doing this, that, the other, um, too much, but then the only people who are on the ice every day are guides, you know? And they they have their own their own set of things to deal with, so I'm definitely not complaining. You're exactly right about that, Nick. I I couldn't agree more. And and every aspect to the industry and every aspect to the sport brings with it, you know, the highs and the lows and the goods and the bads. And and when you just look at it in the big picture, it's it's a whole lot of fun. And that's that's really how we all need to to look at it. Can you let us in, Nick, just a little bit of what it was like? We know you grew up in a fishing family, right? And and fishing, I have to believe, oh, yeah. was was a part of your life since uh, since you were brought home from the hospital. But just tell us what it was like growing up <laughs> in, in that environment, and really how that sparked the the fire of of your own passion for fishing. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, right? Um, everybody, I feel like, grows up wanting to fish with either my dad, Jim, or al or you know whatever it is and it's you know it's funny like you see those guys every day at the office or you know christmas or whatever so that's always sort of interesting you always know you have someone to ask questions to if you want obviously right (laughs) that's for Um, sure yeah so i mean actually it was sort of interesting when i growing up um when i would fish with my dad my dad was just so hardcore that in some ways, it would kind of turn me off in some uh, sometimes. You know, if you're talking like late November, musky fishing, you know, like all the lakes are frozen over, but you're out on some river somewhere and it's like snowing, raining, and, you know, seven years old, huddled underneath the council trying to stay warm kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was, it was definitely a blessing. I mean, it's it's sort of interesting growing up and, you know, seeing people talk about different tactics and this, that, the other. And, you know, there's some things that I guess you could say, like, I would grow up doing with, you know, my family members that I just thought was was normal. Um, and turns out, you know, nobody, nobody, you know, not that many people know to do this or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So. At yeah, that at that point you're just a, at that point you're just along for another rod in the boat, right? And they're trolling muskies and it's November. <laughs> yeah, well, basically, <laughs> yeah, or, or uh, hanging suckers or something. Yeah. But yeah, naturally, the the worse the conditions, the better. And yeah, you're another rod, basically. 
Yeah, no, we uh, we really appreciate that insight. And, and I know growing up in that type of environment, you know, your, your dad and I'm sure the rest of your family was a huge influence. Did you have any other outside influences? I know you talked about other people seeing your mm. family as those influences to their lives and, and their passion for the outdoors. But did you have any other influences in your, in your life that maybe kind of helped kind of instill that passion? Of fishing. Yeah. Of, of fishing um, in, in the outdoors in general, I guess. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, I guess if, if we're going to say the outdoors in general, um, one of my best buddies growing up, uh, we used to, we, next door neighbors used to hang out all the time with each other. His dad was awesome. He was our baseball coach growing up. And, uh, I guess you could say my family doesn't do a lot of hunting, um, which is kind of surprising, right? Fishing and hunting sort of goes together, but, um, yeah. So like all my hunting experience was with my buddy and my baseball coach. And that was always fun deer camp growing up and doing a, a tiny bit of pheasant hunting and, and whatnot but yeah as far as the fishing side goes i would say i would say that's almost all my family it wasn't really until i was a little bit older that i started hooking up with other guys and fishing with other people and you know a lot it would be it would be fishing around uh around town with my dad or going practicing with him for a tournament in sturgeon bay or this that the other was kind of a lot of my growing up essentially you know, Nick, I can relate to the whole hunting fishing thing. I, I grew up in a family that was maybe more centered on the hunting aspect of it, but throughout my adult life, the fishing has always been like, you know, I want to do that fall fishing too. How can I make all of these things fit in right. this limited time window? And it, it's kind of a challenge. You got, you get things pulling you in, in lots of different directions. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I've kind of decided at this point in my life that there's too many, uh, too many fish to chase to to go chase uh animals with a gun or bow or whatever um just because yeah I, I mean this year for example if you were a hardcore hunter you might have missed out on the really awesome early ice bite that we had this year um so it's just one of those things or you know on a regular year you might have missed out on my favorite time well probably my favorite time to fish which is fall i mean fall fishing is amazing and that's hot often a conflict with hunting in a lot of cases so you're right about that nick just this is a question and and, and i want to phrase this in the right way because i guess what i'll just come right out and say it has there ever been a time in your life when fishing wasn't in the the, the front and center position when you've had other things going on uh, uh that maybe that maybe took precedent over fishing yeah you know Growing up, I played a lot of ball sports. So when you play uh, basketball, baseball, and football, it's kind of around the calendar doing stuff, right? I mean, summers can be, you know, you might have some time to fish and stuff during the summer, but, like, during the winter, it's, you know, you're kind of going nonstop from football season into basketball season. And, yeah, so, I mean, I played a lot of sports growing up, basically. So it wasn't until that started to fade off a little bit more that I – you know, got more into fishing, I would say. Although, you know, I obviously fished since I was tiny just because of the family I grew up in. Right, but I think a lot of our listeners can relate. Those who have kids, those who, who remember back in those days when, when your school sports were, were kind of the focus in the center and 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 maybe 
the outdoors were were second or third in line. And then just the progression as as you move out of that that time of your life and and you, you get to become an adult, maybe make some more of those choices on your own. You you tend to to gravitate back to the outdoors, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I'm a parent, and I would say I have a couple very small children. Um, but I would say if you are a parent and you're worried about your kid, um, just maybe not showing a lot of interest in outdoor activities and maybe more into sports or, you know, God forbid video games or whatever. Right. But I I would say from personal experience that, um, don't get too worried because things can change and, you know, school and sports and there's a lot of stuff going on when you're growing up. And I, I can't tell you how many people I know that were into ball sports and, you know, maybe hunted or fished a little bit that became, super into hunting and fishing like i i couldn't even believe it once they hit their 20s or late teens or whatnot i think that's great advice for our listeners and i think it's something that you can really relate to for most of our listeners as well like there's so many things that you know can come up in a person's life that might get you away from fishing for a while but it's it's one of those things that it's always there it's not you're not going to grow out of fishing shape by, you know, not fishing for a season like you would for a sport maybe, but, you know, you can always come back to it. You can always relate to to fishing in the outdoors and, and getting out on the ice. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So one question too, that I've asked several of our guests, and I think it's always fun to hear uh, any favorite like fishing memories, whether it's, you know, recently or growing up in the, in the outdoors and fishing with your, your parents or mm. relatives or anything any real special memory that stands out to you out on the ice huh that's a on the ice okay um man that's a that's a great question i would almost have to think about that for a second no and that's fine I, I think it's really interesting you know for myself i've got so many great fishing memories and one that really stands out to me it was just an epic day pike fishing with my family i was probably 12 years old but it's still one of those memories that I'll never forget. And you look back at the pictures and it's just one of those days that was just like, I can't, you can't even imagine that that happened. All right. I, I got one. I'll throw this one out there. Um, I would say, I think it was two years ago. So it's not like an old childhood memory or anything, but um, I got the opportunity to fish with Brian Brosdell for blue, uh, bluegills, sunfish, I guess I should say in this case. Um, and it was like, it was so crazy. I, I've i never fished with someone who's that dialed for sunfish. Um, and he's fishing with an underwater camera. I learned it. I just learned so much with like about the efficiency of how to track down bluegills and catch them, I guess. And it was like the craziest, uh, most productive bluegill, uh, sunfish, sunfishing that I've ever done. I mean, it was crazy mixed bag of bluegills and pumpkin seeds. And I couldn't even tell you how many fish over nine inches we caught, you know, a handful over 10. And it was, it was a really, really cool experience. Um, just absolutely whacking them with like a true master. That's a great story. And I think, you know, relating to that a little bit, I mean, there's been so many times where I've been on the ice. I'm sure Kyle can attest to that, that 
you get on those special bites and it just creates that burned in image in your brain and you sit back and when the days and it's 30 below and you're not ice fishing, you can kind of think about those memories and be like, wow, oh, do you remember that bite? Or, okay, now I don't feel so right. bad about getting out and it's 30 below trying to battle with that. Or it keeps you going when you are on the ice and you're hunting down that bite. It, it's one of those things that we can all kind of relate to. You know, and it and it sometimes is that that day on the river in late November fishing muskies when you're just really wondering what the heck am I doing here, and all of a sudden one bite and the whole day changes. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's a, uh, I mean, for me, it's it's just really it's really cool whenever you get the chance to fish with someone who's really really good at their craft. Um, it's just crazy how much you can pick up from people who are good at things, you know, whether it's, whether it's bluegill fishing like that, or, you know, uh, jumping on Malax with, you know, one of the guides there, um, or even like musky fishing with someone who like I fished with, I've, it's weird. I've worked with them for, you know, half a decade or whatever. Jeremy Smith, he is like the most incredible live bait musky fisherman I've ever fished with like just just the way he presents the bait is it's just insane he's just a presentation master and it's I mean there's just some people who are really really good at certain things and it's crazy how much you can learn when you hop in the boat with them or join them join them on the ice or whatnot so it's yeah it's it's cool it's interesting to hear that you can learn from all these people still having been around all these people and all the media that you've produced and all the, I'm sure all the articles you've seen and shows you've seen and help produce. And I think that's the one takeaway that I get from this too, is just, there's always something to learn about fishing, whether you're, you know, a diehard that does it every day or someone that's just doing it on the weekends. When you get time, you learn something every time you're out there. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I think uh, the tough part about media is like one thing I, one thing I really, really try to do the best I can, but it's just very, very difficult to do, is uh, really capture the little things that actually help people catch fish. There's just so many little idiosyncrasies that people do that um, just make a huge difference, and it's sometimes it's tough to capture that. You know, a lot of videos and art you know articles and whatever is sort of like hey this is what we're doing like you know but you don't necessarily you don't necessarily see all the details that got them on fish that day and um yeah and i I, also i will say too like anybody who thinks that they're really really good or knows everything is just they're they couldn't be more wrong i mean you just i think that just means they have to fish with more people um I think everybody can learn a lot from a lot of different people, no matter how good they are at ice fishing. They're probably so, really good at that one technique take. or that one species. I mean, they, but then there's a whole nother way that you could target that same fish or target that species. And, you know, that person, if you put them in that environment, might be completely out of their element. Yeah, no, I agree. And, I, you know, I would even argue that even within your own element, whatever you're really, really good at, you're probably missing not only something, but probably a lot of things. Um, there's just a lot of ways to catch a fish. Um, and when you get sort of, uh, caught up in the ways you like to do it or the ways you've had experience doing it, the ways you've seen other people do it, um, 
I don't know. You just sort of get pigeonholed into those things. Um, we, we're always so. fishing memories. No matter how, no, mean, how how hard you try not to fish memories, you're always trying to fish a memory. And, you know, the first minute I'm out on a lake that I've maybe been on and I try something different and doesn't work, it's like, well, let's go here because I know that that works. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And, I mean, why is it that when we, when we go out walleye fishing, we just immediately tie on a spoon or, you know, a chicken wrap or whatever it is that your favorite bait is? Like, why is it that we always do that, you know? I mean, Try, know, trying to re- trying to recreate the memory, it's, right? Yeah, totally. It's what you've had success doing, and like you never know. Like a little tiny jig might have just been the deal that day, you know. And maybe you've never fished that way, and a lot of people haven't. So I don't know. That's what keeps driving us, keeps us going back out on the ice, keeps us going out day after day, or week after week, or whenever we can get on the ice. Isn't that right? Is is just seeing what else we can learn, seeing what else we can master to, to make this sport more successful. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you have a mindset like that, you're, you're in really good shape. There's definitely a lot of people out there who want to go right back out to their honey hole and catch them the same way. And that's just, uh, that's just what they want to do. But other people are wired differently and other people want to, you know, push the limit always and learn as much as they can. And, you know, obviously those are going to be the people really pushing the envelope and finding out cool stuff. But yeah, it's, it's a good mindset to have. Nick, it is just uh, awesome having you on the podcast here for this episode. We really appreciate it. And when you talk about telling the story, when you talk about those little details and what you show in the media you create, where can our listeners see that media? And uh, just in case they aren't familiar with it, we want to make sure that they are and, and they hear it here. Uh, where can they find you? So I would say if I could point folks to one place right now, it would be to the Angling Buzz YouTube channel. And the reason why you should go there is because we've uh, got this series that we've been doing this winter called Angling Buzz Ice. And um, we posted four videos in that series this uh, this winter, and they're they're kind of lengthy, but it was one of those things where we put in a lot of work to make it really cool. And I, it seems like a lot of people have really been enjoying them. So um, if you're going to check out one thing, that would be it. Well, and I would give a plug to our listeners to to absolutely go out and do that. Uh, watch that, watch that content, watch that media that's coming out from these folks because uh, they are multi-generational fishing and angling educators. And that is that is what they do through so many different channels. And uh, Nick, it's been great having you on. Thanks for taking some time to visit with us. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I think it's really cool what you guys are doing right now. I think uh, one place where uh, the fishing industry could uh, use a little extra oomph is the podcast world. I love podcasts. I'm like the most avid podcast listener ever. And I think that there needs to be more fishing podcasts, more and better, and I think you guys do a great job. So just a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for taking your time to uh, to share a little bit with us and our listeners. And thank you to Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear for making Shack Talk possible. Uh, great support from, from that organization uh, as well as others. For Nick, for Anthony, this is Kyle. Get on out there and do some ice fishing and have a blast doing it. We'll uh, we'll be back in another couple weeks with another episode. 